three, two, two one. one. Let's go. go! <laughs> I'm the host okay. of the PVE podcast, yeah. sitting down with Gary Schendel, and uh, I'll, I'll pass the mic to him in a minute. But what is uh, what needs to happen is a thank you to Trunkline, Trunkline.com, a revolutionary marketing tool. And what they're doing is allowing you as a provider, as a service provider, uh, and, and, and even a consultant, you put your projects up online, the before, the after, what you learned, what your major takeaways were, where you save time, where you save money. And as a company, you can build this project portfolio through their website. And then once you do that and you upload your projects, it goes to work on the marketing. It gets it out there through all the social media channels for you, help you on SEO and all those things that happen with Google. Uh, it's a really cool website and something that I totally believe will help uh, many service providers continue through these times, no matter if it's a global recession or not. Services to keep our energy energy demand uh, under control, services for fresh water aquifers and developing all those things, who's drilling the best wells, who's doing it with this, the best practices. Trunkline's capturing that. It's kind of an Angie's list, if you will, for the the services uh, that are being provided for the natural resource industry. Uh, so that's really exciting. The other thing I want to mention real quick is the South Texas Geologic Society Christmas party. I assume you're going to be there. Yes. All right. Uh, it's December 15th. Uh, we're still looking for sponsors. We're always looking for uh, help on those events. And, uh, and so on behalf of the South Texas Geologic Society, everyone has an open invite to come and, uh, and hang out with the geologists of South Texas, the engineers, the people that are in these natural resource uh, industries, and, uh, and just a, a great night for networking and, and to just say thanks to, for all the hard work for the year and to celebrate the, the end of a, another amazing year and uh, get ready for the next one. So December 15th, reach out to Justin Sharp, justinwsharp at gmail.com with the STGS for more information there. Uh, and now, Gary, please make a quick introduction uh, Okay, who you are. Well, first off, the uh, Christmas parties with the STGS are always a lot of fun. So I encourage you to go. Uh, my name is Gary Schindel. Uh, I am uh, a, a professional geologist and karst hydrogeologist living in San Antonio, Texas. Right on. Okay. You've recently retired. Recently retired. Uh, also past president of the National Speleological Society. And uh, I've been a uh, caver and geologist for about 40 years. Man, your cave stories got me going, got my juices going. One, because I, I just kind of have this claustrophobia-ish feeling when I'm in there. Uh, so I'm always kind of get the chills when I when I think about people in caves, and then you telling me that you got a four inch space of, of oxygen, and you know you're cr you're crawling through cracks, and uh, man, your story is was was fascinating. And uh, back back when I was younger and dumber, <laughs> it's amazing what you'll do for four twenty five an hour. <laughs> Well, you were having fun doing it. We were. And uh, man, you're still here today to, to share that knowledge and wisdom and what you learned, what worked, what didn't. Uh, that's that's incredibly valuable. And uh, and so I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to walk us through that. And, you know, one of the things that always crosses my mind or certainly has been on my mind ever since my undergrad was this water problem, you know, this fresh water problem and water wars and the idea that, oh, that's going to be the next biggest thing in, in natural resources is the fresh water. 
um, scarcity problems and how are we handling this situation? What, what's your outlook for the next five, 10 years, or maybe even call it 50? You know, what's fresh water? What's, where's it going? Well, you know, population increases, increases demand. So uh, to meet that demand, there's a couple different ways to do it. One is to try and develop more resources. Uh, the other method is through conservation. And uh, I think it's important that you have an active program in both and that you manage the resource so that's sustainable. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to be mining groundwater and creating other problems. Wow. Yeah, if we can get a notice to my neighbor who waters his lawn 17 hours a day and it floods my yard, he's watering it so bad, and I got a dog that's back there. It's a in-house dog, yep. so it gets all muddy, and now we got to deal with that problem because this guy's watering his lawn too much. <laughs> you know, It's like, hey, man, conserve a little bit here. You know, there's some rules. Yeah, yeah, there is. Uh that's a difficult issue. How do you convince or coerce people into using less water and being more uh, uh, conservation-minded in their water use? And it runs from everything from watering their grass to what kind of food you take in because the amount of water being used for things like growing beef versus growing corn or growing uh, other crops and that is immense. Wow. I mean, I think I read over 1,000 gallons required for one pound of beef. A thousand gallons of water for one pound of beef? I believe that's, that's the case. I'll have to look up the number wow. of it. Maybe even greater than that. Wow. Yeah, I never even thought of mass balancing what, what, wow. that, what that is. Yeah. Um, as far as the watering and stuff, I'm super interested in technologies that can just use less water and be more efficient with the uh, elemental exchange and the gas exchange between the soil and the grass. You know, what's actually making it grow. Uh, if you just hit it with dead water that's not very active and doesn't have much way to interact with those soils elementally and chemically, uh, you know, you're wasting a bunch of water just trying to, you think more water is going to help me grow my grass. No, it's the this distribution of those elements that break down the soils that's releasing gases and feeds the plant. Yep. You know, there's got to be some modern technology too that needs to be developed in these areas where people, I love flourishing grass. I love good grass, but you know, if, if it's not naturally doing it from the rainwater and stuff, I, I kind of sit back and think, well, you know, what's, why do I have to water it more? You know, there's something else going on there. Yeah. Well, or, or whether you should have grass. I mean, part of our issue is we live on the edge of the Chihuahuan Desert, but you, some people want to have a yard like they live in uh, northern New Jersey. <laughs> so I'm not sure that those are compatible. But, you know, about, I think the number I've read is about 70% of all water being used in the summer months are for irrigating grass. Oh my and as gosh. some people say, as you know, you um you water the grass so you can mow it and you don't even eat the grass clippings you know so uh or feed them to anybody so uh anyway you know why are we you know why are we growing this giant monoculture of grass um maybe zero scaping uh and some yeah. other techniques may be more efficient sure. in saving saving water yeah i just moved from arizona we had like that landscape of our whole yard is like a house on an acre and it was all just desert and rock and, and uh cactus and stuff like uh we had turf in the backyard you know i don't know about that recycled plastic turf stuff so much but still i mean it was you know it's very beautiful landscape <laughs> without the need of watering yeah. and cutting your grass all yeah but you but you see uh, arizona is probably one of the prime areas that's going to have to wrestle with the incredible growth that's occurring mm -hmm. in the phoenix area you mm -hmm. see groundwater subs or uh, ground subsidence issues from over pumping 
Um, there's massive amounts of irrigation that are being done, and much of that is uh, inefficient flood irrigation. Whereas in Texas, we've incentivized farmers to basically put in center pivot systems that are much more efficient. And uh, so Arizona's going to have to make some choices, you know, about whether they're going to cons how how they're going to conserve water and utilize what little they have. And you're seeing that now with you know the fact that what Lake Mead is. Uh, is about as low as it's ever been since it was filled. Um, yeah. There are you know issues that they're looking at cutting off the, the amount of water next year if we don't have a to decent snowpack. Las Vegas citizens and stuff. Well, like to that? you know the whole Colorado you know uh, water compact area. Wow. So um, yeah, so they you know they're <clears throat> you know in a very prolonged and very deep drought out there, yeah. and they're going to have to address some of these issues. Uh, very seriously. Uh, the Edwards Aquifer Authority implemented a program where they uh, helped farmers uh, take loans out to put in center pivot systems. So they use about half of the water that a flood irrigation system used, and then they were able to actually sell that water they saved over to some of the cities, which paid them, you, wow. know, uh, you know, basically for that water right. Fantastic. So the water market seems to have really helped with conservation issues. Wow. Um, and then, of course, the city of San Antonio and some of the other cities have also implemented some really great conservation programs with low flush toilets, uh, restrictions hmm. on water, you know, water use um, uh, for, uh, for irrigating lawns and that and restricting the amount of water that can be uh, or the times of day that, that water can be applied. Uh, they have a number of other, you know, uh, conservation programs uh, in effect, too. Interesting. So you got to work on both ends, you know, yeah. looking at supply and making sure it's managed so it's sustainable. Yeah. And also to conserve, you know, water so that you're using it wisely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so much dropped out of the, the show in, in all kinds of little ways, little epiphanies as you were talking about things. And, and one of them was this idea, this bad water line, and how through geologic time in the Edwards, it seems to be migrating deeper in the aquifer, increasing permeability uh, as it does that through this positive loop that you yeah. talked about. Positive feedback loop, right. With the sulfur and how it's yeah. creating this sulfuric acid, that, and that's creating porosity and permeability right. as it's with, moving yeah. through geologic time. Such right. an interesting concept. And, and one that gives me confidence and some security, and maybe I sleep a little bit better knowing that, you know, as our aquifer the freshwater side of it is it it's getting bigger and we're getting more fresh water and easier ways to flow that fresh water to these wells that we already have so we need maybe less drilling in the future you know you can start arguing that you know nature is giving us uh, a, a more reliable natural resource you know it, that's that was pretty cool to, yeah. to kind of put that together yeah the aquifer is large enlarging i mean you can just look at the uh the uh, concentration of uh, calcium and bicarbonate in the water discharging out of Comel Springs. You can calculate, you know, roughly uh, how much increase in porosity through the the uh, removal of uh, the limestone uh, is occurring across the water, you know, across the the artesian portion of the aquifer. Oh, wow. So That's if you think great. about it, yeah. The problem is, is it's you know it's it's micron by micron along the walls of a conduit sure. over time. So um, 
you and I probably won't in our lifetime see a significant increase, and it would be extremely hard to measure other than to approximate it looking at, you know, this mass of uh, transfer removal of calcium carbonate out of the springs. Yeah. It's, it's coming from the walls of the, uh, of the uh, conduits in, in the aquifer. Wow. And parts of the aquifer are going to have higher bicarbonate because it's, it's just it's doing it more efficiently is that what, well it's just you know the the dissolution process is occurring right that's still occurring and that byproduct of that dissolution is the calcium and, and bicarbonate that's discharging out of the spring yeah so you can say yes you know the dissolution process is still occurring yeah you know uh, from the contributing zone the recharge zone as well as the deep artesian portion of the aquifer. man that was one thing i wanted to bring up in the show and just maybe a quick comment about uh carbon and co2 sequestering into the 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 rock and also being uh uh put in the in the solution it's in the water co2 and it's it's, it's super it's small amounts yeah small amounts but it yeah. seems to be very important yeah. to uh to these aquifers right i uh I mean, in theory, increases in CO2 should make more, you know, in the atmosphere should make more carbon available uh, to, uh, you know, in, in the water, which, you know, in theory would, you know, cause an increase in dissolution rates. But again, hmm. probably not a lot, you know, that you could measure. Um, and that, you know, as far as sequestering carbon, you know, uh, you know, limestone is a good place to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, is are we making more limestone or are we affecting the, uh, because there's more CO2 being dissolved in the oceans also, are we affecting the pH of the ocean, which causes uh, less uh, material to precipitate out? Hmm. So if you think about it, uh, one of the concerns with uh, increasing CO2 levels is whether some of the uh, biologic communities that rely on uh, calcium carbonate basically can they precipitate it out if the ph is uh continue mm. to decrease mm. yeah interesting so yeah. the carbonate factories um, yeah. like the shorelines and whatnot uh with ph decreasing right becoming more acidic more acidic right the ph is decreasing in the oceans is that a fact yes oh absolutely the pH is decreasing in the oceans. The right. oceans are becoming more acidic. Right. There, that's the major area where most of the CO2 that's in the atmosphere is being absorbed now is in the oceans. And so one of the questions would be is how much more can it absorb and what kind of impact does that pH have? That, that you know, acidification of the oceans it has on precipitating out calcium carbonate. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And the idea of... Uh, anthropogenic carbon creation uh going into the atmosphere it's it's getting sequestered into the ocean not all of it no that's why you've seen an increase in co2 levels you know they're over 400 parts per million right now right um and up from about what 250 i think it was 270 definitely dangerously industrial. low levels for yeah. sure yeah industrial uh you know pre pre-industrial uh revolution i think the uh CO2 was around 250, I think. But wow. again, this is not my area of expertise. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, the, we've got an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, it's from basically, you know, burning hydrocarbons. And, right. um, and you know, it's having impacts on, you know, uh, climate on a global basis. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a rabbit hole we'd have to go down in like episode two on you know exactly what's going on there, uh, because the the process of serpentinization, which is making the ocean basins and the ocean floors, that process that makes serpentinite in the ocean floors is a massive co2 uh release right it's a massive hydrogen um yeah methane and co2 and uh just a, a crazy huge process um that's going on and it's going going on across all the oceans so right. the the scale of it and its contribution uh which you'd argue you can see in geologic rock record we might be ramping up in in a time of serpentinization which has happened several times in the past uh, that could be contributing a lot uh, to to the this increase as well. Uh, I, I'm concerned that we uh, we maybe don't understand that process as well as we we could or should, yeah. and um, and uh, you know it could be having kind of a dire impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the oceans are heating up. It appears it's very very interesting uh, what's really going on there, and there there's definitely good research uh, you know going in that direction, but um it's kind of late you know that seems like it could have been uh you know ex- really studying this uh and warmer oceans uh calcium carbonate if i remember correctly uh is more soluble in colder water than warm water too mm. you know um so mm. yeah it's it's kind of it's not intuitive you would normally think that you know you can dissolve more materials in warmer water than you can colder water but my understanding is is that the uh the uh, carbonates are actually are fairly more soluble in colder water in colder water yeah oh, so that's not good so yeah. if it's heating up where right. it's another slowing down the absorption rate right interesting i wonder if there's a correlation there with yeah. what's going on the, in the atmosphere too there there are, are certainly people who are more knowledgeable than me that would be, <laughs> be, be people that you would want to take you know, ask about that, but that's interesting. That's my understanding. Yeah. No, interesting. As was this entire show. This episode is brought to you by Trunkline. You probably know Trunkline as the company that makes the legendary oil field horizontal drilling socks. And it's true. Our drill baby drill socks featuring a heel to toe wellbore are 100% American made and are designed right in the heart of the oil and gas industry. But did you know that Trunkline is also a revolutionary digital marketing tool that can transform the way you advertise your oil field services? For only $800 a month, you can showcase your company's project track record on Trunkline and our automated platform will boost your exposure through social media, email marketing, SEO, and more. Now, whenever one of your new customers asks you, can you show me an example of your work? You can simply turn them to your Trunkline portfolio. It's more effective than a brochure, it's less expensive than sponsoring a whole other golf course, and easier than maintaining your website. Join more than 200 service companies on Trunkline by signing up at register.trunkline.com today. Let's go. Well, let's uh, let's start the conception part of the PBE podcast, and it's uh, it's Geary Schindel, right? right. Geary G- Schindel. Yeah, G-E-A-R-Y. Yeah. It's not my fault, and I have no explanation why. <laughs> Why it's spelled that way? <laughs> uh, I was thinking maybe it's Canadian or something. No, it's it's unique. Yeah, it the, is. The, the, the family uh, legend has it that my uh, my parents decided on the name. My cousin, I guess, wanted to spell it, and she named me after some 
a B-grade movie star in the 50s who I've never found. So I'm not, my parents laugh, and I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> so, that sounds like a good story. Yeah, as good as any, I guess. <laughs> well, where are you from? What? Uh, well, I grew up uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Yeah, wow. Okay, cool. Geology is really cool out there. Fascinating. Well, the Piedmont, yeah. And, you know, we, um, we live very close to um, Great Falls, Maryland, uh, which is where the Potomac River cuts a gorge, you know, as it comes off the Piedmont into the coastal plain and the fall line. And so there's some wonderful um, and very bizarre rock outcrops uh, there along the Potomac River and along the cliffs there. Right on. Yeah. So you, when you were a kid, you got to walk up and down all that stuff? Well, on occasion. My parents didn't like because it's also a Class 6 uh, you know, whitewater uh <laughs> And yeah, it's Don't one of the more close. dangerous national yeah. parks because it's so close to a large population center. And, um, you know, there's serious water. And, of course, people go there and, uh, and enjoy, you know, their time along the rocks. And sometimes they fall in. Oh, and that, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, I think, only the very best boaters have actually been able to, to kayak the, uh, most of the rapids there. Wow. It's very impressive. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, my experience of understanding the physics of water, uh, you know, cause, cause you don't, un, you really don't get it unless you feel that, that power, uh, certainly the ocean, you know, under toes and the waves, you know, growing up in California, I was able to, to understand the, how powerful water, you know, really is. Uh, and that goes to, to the podcast that we're talking about. Like it just, it's amazing what, uh, even calm water, uh, what looks appears to be calm water, like 10, 15 feet deeper. If you jump into it off a cliff or anything like that, it could be roaring, you know, underneath there could be, it's very, very fascinating. Water, water is so fascinating. The structure of it, how it interacts with the real world, how it interacts with nature, you know, how important it is that we live on this water planet, how we understand you know water uh so tell me how this goes how does the story of uh of gary becoming a hydrologist <laughs> right of, of yeah how does that go well you know i've been interested in geology since i was a young kid which is i understand fairly unusual most people um you know get into it by taking a um survey course in college and that but uh yeah. i knew i wanted to be a geologist uh from about the age of 12 wow and then uh, at the age of 14 i was old enough to uh join uh the venture or actually it's, it was called explorer scouts at the time nice. i was a boy scout and um it was uh older kids 14 to 21 uh and it's co-ed and that group specialized in caving and canoeing exactly. and so uh at the age of 14 i went into my first cave and then decided i wanted to uh study caves which oh, is a man. pretty unusual niche um <laughs> I spent two years at the local community college, okay. um, Montgomery, Montgomery College in Maryland, and uh, excellent education, and then went off to, uh, uh, took a year off and worked to save money to go to uh, West Virginia University, which mm. had a, um, a good program on groundwater and, and in particular caves and karst. So went there, uh, spent two and a half, I think, more years going to school. And then went to graduate school at Western Kentucky University wow. in Bowling Green, Kentucky, where they had a program that specialized in, in karst hydrogeology. 
Wow. So how did the connection between West Virginia and then Western Kentucky, how did you, of all opportunities, of all schools, all, you know, how did that connection happen? Well, um, they have a, uh, they had a uh, researcher there, uh, Dr. Nick Crawford, who um, had developed a program specifically on caves and karst. And Bowling Green is sit- situated on the Mammoth Cave Plateau, the uh, Penny Royal Plain, basically. So uh, there were caves basically on campus and um, some large groundwater basins. He'd done a lot of research, and they uh, also offered money. <laughs> so <laughs> graduate like, assistantship, uh, right. Things and, are lining up here. Right, right. So uh, I worked there... Um, uh, and graduated in 1984, at the end of 84, and at the same time was working as a uh, Park Service uh, physical science technician uh, at Mammoth Cave National Park under uh, Dr. Jim Quinlan. And, that. and then before I actually, between uh, West Virginia University and Montgomery College, I uh, worked on a tunnel boring machine. And, on a what? Uh, so we were drilling tunnels under oh, a uh, tunnel boring machine. Yeah, TBM. Yeah, so tunnel uh, boring machine. Yeah. How big of a hole can that thing make? Uh, that one was only about six and a half feet, so it was actually only a small machine. Yeah, six and a half foot yeah. diameter hole. Right. Yeah. So for and how long could it drill? Um, as long as you can feed it, you know, rail and pipe and power. Oh my! Um, and don't wear out the bits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And that. So uh, yeah, it was an interesting job. It also motivated me to get back to college. We were making. Uh, 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 I was making $400 a week at 60 hours, so it came out to about $6.60 an hour. Yeah. Uh, my first job was basically holding the drill steel uh, up against the cutting face to blast out the horizontal hole big enough to get the tunnel boring machine in. So uh, we basically would drill it out with about 100 drill holes and then pack it with a uh, with uh, dynamite and blow it out and then muck it out and then start the process over again, put in roof bolts and then move forward. Holy so, smokes. Yeah, so what was the point? Why were they building it, these? It was a um, long-term uh, water supply project uh, for Prince George's County that had to run from the Potomac River through Montgomery County into Prince George's County, which is also a, a suburb of Washington, D.C. So it was basically for putting in a, a you know, large water uh, pipe. Wow, feeding a, a city that didn't get natural water very well. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the Potomac River is the primary you know, source. There are a couple large um, reservoirs in D.C., but um, there are some water intakes at Great Falls um, that pull water up and, and, um, and utilize it. Now, I didn't stay to complete the project. I decided after a year of that that I was either going to be killed or... Uh, <laughs> Or become a, the operator of the tunnel boring machine and never see the light of day. Oh my God! Uh, and that uh, had an interesting experience there. I mean, it was a small job, and so I got to do basically everything, and right uh, it was great. But uh, we were um, uh, one of the exciting events to go on back to school and finish my degree was um, the tunnel boring machine had a catwalk on it. And the catwalk had popped off the machine and jammed into the wall, and it had bent the, bent the catwalk on the machine. Mm-hmm. And so me and the uh, foreman were down there with a pry bar uh, and uh, come along and, and a bunch of sledgehammers <laughs> beating this thing you know, senseless when we, we both got knocked to the ground um, <clears throat> and all the power in the tunnel was killed. And I remember kind of waking up foggy with water running into my pant leg and out my neck. I just remember that part. And we stood up, and you could look down the tunnel to the shaft. There was about a hundred and a hundred foot deep hole, you know, lowered us down to get us down below grade, and that. 
and I looked down the tunnel, and I could see a light at the end of the tunnel, but I didn't know if it was the light at the end oh of the tunnel God. or just the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh and we came out, and it turns out that the transformer that was running the, the tunnel boring machine had been hit by lightning with a thunderstorm and uh, came into the tunnel and amazingly didn't kill us. And uh, But there was enough, you know, we had iron rails and, you know, um, compressed air and electric lines and... You kind know, of absorbed all the hit. Well, yeah, uh, I guess, and brought it our way, but I guess it had dissipated enough because we were about 500 feet down the tunnel, you know, uh, when when the lightning hit. So we, so they they let us take uh, another hour off. You know, uh, it basically was about 10 o'clock in the morning. So they let us come out of the tunnel, and you know, basically we sat around, ate lunch, and then they put us back in the tunnel at one o'clock, and we were oh we were back to work. Gosh! At that point, I figured I probably should go back to school. <laughs> so, <laughs> what well, an awakening. experience, yeah. man! It was wow. it was an excellent experience. Holy um, cow, man! What a that's that sounds intense. It knocked you unconscious. Well, I I don't think we were out very long. If so, but I know remember being knocked to the ground. And you know we're you know, we're standing in you know a couple inches of water, Gosh, and uh, you know holding onto a six foot pry bar. Gosh. <laughs> so you know, it's amazing what you'll do when you're young and dumb and, and don't think you can't be killed by anything short of kryptonite. You know, <laughs> and then you get a little smarter. Gosh, well you'd think you know the the company and the the experienced guys running that ship would be like, hey, you know we got lightning in the area, let's shut this thing down until the afternoon. Yeah, you would think. Protocols. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's back. You're back in the tunnel. It's safe, you know. Of course, you look at everything, you know, all the uh, services, you know, electric lines, compressed air line, compressed water line, you know. Uh, the fencing that, you know, basically is used for roof control. Uh, the railroad tracks that we were running muck out of the tunnel with, you know. So, yeah, there's plenty of metal to bring power in. But uh, I guess it had dissipated enough that yeah. it didn't. Didn't wipe you out. No, huh? Son of a gun. <laughs> Glad. I'm happy to have you. Yeah. <laughs> there have been a number of attempts uh, over the years of my uh, smiting, but so far they've been unsuccessful. So. <laughs> you are resilient. <laughs> resilient, yeah. I do get smarter with age, though. Oh, man. What Some a... people would argue that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot. So, so now you go back to, gr you're in grad school or you go to a PhD program after that? No, actually, I, I don't have a PhD. Okay. I um, had two choices was to go uh, go the academic route because at that point, if um, if you went and got a PhD, you probably were going to do research and or academics. Yeah. Um, I was more interested in, in applied you know, practical work. And so, um, so I stopped at the end of my master's and then um, became more of an applied hydrogeologist. And that, so after leaving, um, so it's really interesting. Um, while in graduate school, I did my research on um, uh, groundwater contamination with bacterial uh, uh, enteric contamination of, uh, of groundwater systems in these karst uh, settings and that. And also worked at the National Park Service at Mammoth Cave National Park, where yeah. I worked with a team of three or four other people mapping caves. And so um, during the summer, we would space our time such that we would be doing these 24-hour-long wetsuit trips into parts of um, the uh, cave system that fed Mammoth Cave out on the uh, Penny Royal Plain, uh, in the Sinkhole Plain, basically. So one of the caves that we would do would be... Um, 
uh, what's called Whig Pistol. It was about 20 miles of map passage at the time, and we were continuing to explore it. And the first 3,000 feet of the cave um, were basically hands and knees and or belly crawl in the oh. stream with uh, three places that had about six inches of airspace, and we would push through and then get out of that feeder passage, basically, and into parts of the main cave. And so we would do these 24-hour-long wetsuit trips into the cave and map, you know, mile, literally miles of virgin cave. We'd walk down, you know, some of the largest passages in, in the Mammoth Cave area were in this cave. But Were uh, you walking this like the first people to walk Oh, this? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we were Gosh, mapping in this. That yeah, must have been pretty putting cool. Putting the first footsteps down. Wow. And that, um, and that cave has now been... Um, tied into two other caves but still hasn't been tied into the main mammoth cave system and i think it's now about 26 27 miles of map passage including a couple major um uh streams that are found in the cave that's what we were interested in is trying to map and understand the um the network of caves that feed the mammoth cave area um and so we were doing uh, cave mapping uh we would do a 24-hour trip come out you know, go in, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock one morning, come out 8 or 9 o'clock the next morning, and then uh, we would go, um, uh, you know, get fed and go wash our clothes, get a day's sleep, and then maybe the next day or the day after we go back in, if the weather was stable. If the weather was not stable, we didn't go. Meaning, like, it's not going to rain, right? Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, that is the... I can't do it. I don't know what kind of advice you have for me, but I just do not like being in caves. Well, um, that's probably a... a pretty good pretty good advice in the sense that um you know maybe you're you're trying to trying to tell yourself something you know if you're not comfortable that's okay i understand that 100 percent. and as i get older i'm not as comfortable with doing you know the crazy things that we did you know when i was in grad school but we come out of the cave at eight or seven or eight in the morning um and you have that three thousand feet of crawlway that you have to go back through and the problem is you don't know what the weather's doing outside hopefully you know your weather reports were good and the weather was stable in that but we would uh, basically charge our car by lamps and then we would just basically move continuously through that 3,000 feet till we got out of the cave um, yeah the first after 3,000 feet you could get up into a what we call a big dome pit and that area probably didn't flood to the ceiling but the um you know there were times when we would go in and you know we'd have a big storm come through and we'd go in a couple of days later after the weather had settled and that and uh, you know parts of that 3000 feet had been rearranged and there were tires jammed up into the you know cracks in the what ceiling the and hell? rocks moved and uh you know th- that part of the cave obviously flooded to the ceiling there's grass and stuff stuck to the ceiling wow. that wasn't there before so wow Man, why do they call it the Mammoth Cave System? Is it just because it's big? Uh, it's the longest map cave in the world. It's now 420 miles of map passage. Um, and uh, there's some unique geology that comes together there. Um, the cave itself is underneath the, uh, the uh, Chester Upland, which is basically a, a Pennsylvania-capped um, ridges with you know about three to 500 feet of limestone underneath it. Wow. And... Um, as the Green River cut down, um, it drained the levels over millions of years. So there's, I think there's five different recognized levels. And um, the cave is, uh, again, the longest known cave in the world. And there's another cave that's over 120 miles of map passage that's within 1,000 feet, I think, of connecting to Mammoth Cave, which will push it probably over 500 miles at some point. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, so, uh, and it's been actively explored since the 1950s, mid 50s by the Cave Research Foundation and of course by um, National Park Service uh, teams yeah. and that. Those teams are no longer active. I, you know, I, we, I basically caught the last three years of those. And after I uh, left, the uh, program was basically shut down. Wow. What was the reasoning for that? Well, uh, funding and then the, uh, the park geologist, Jim Quinlan, basically left the park. And um, their research programs were um, modified and changed. They went more into sampling and that. Uh, and um, and uh, he did over 500 dye traces in the Mammoth Cave area and developed a lot of the dye tracing techniques that we use, we use today. And then, dye uh, traces? Yeah, dye tracing, yeah. What are you doing with that? Um, it's an expertise. Um, it's fairly unique, I guess. There's, there's not a lot of people doing it. Uh, a couple hand, a handful of people in the country uh, that are doing it on a kind of a professional basis. There are certainly more on the academic level that are doing it for research purposes. But basically, you're using a um, fluorescent dye is what we use. Um, so uh, uranine, also known as fluorescein, sodium fluorescein, or uh, so, uh, sulfur B, or eosine, or one of the other dyes. And you can inject it into a sinkhole, or a swallow hole, or a stream, or a well even. And what it will do is tell you a couple things if you design the test correctly um, and you're monitoring uh, the correct areas and that you would um, uh, detect the dye and it would tell you the connections, uh, subsurface connection routes. Uh, it would also tell you the time of travel, how long it took for the dye to get from point A to point B. Because it like degrades or something? It, it changes? Uh, it, it can. It can. Um, hmm. But generally the dyes are fairly... Um, they uh, they usually don't uh, don't chemically change much in the water system, but again, it depends on how long they're in the system. And uh, you can use this data to um, uh, to also determine concentrations or make estimates on what concentrations you would expect to receive if you do a quantitative trace. Mm. So we used to collect water samples, and also we would use active granular activated charcoal. And we may put anywhere from 30 to 50 or 60 of these charcoal traps out and then go collect them you know, every couple days to every week or every two weeks, depending on what your, your design uh, interest mm. is. You pull them out and then you extract the dye out of the charcoal or you can run a raw water sample because when you pick up the charcoal packets, you take a water sample at the same time. And then you can run them through a, um, a luminescent spectrometer uh, and then you can separate out the dyes and then look at the concentrations and that. And that's an expertise I, I've been fortunate enough to work with Dr. Quinlan and Dr. Crawford who both developed a lot of the early techniques and wow. have carried it forward. So That's pretty interesting yeah. stuff. They're using light to uh, see the differences in the water, the elemental differences yeah, in the water? Yeah, you actually use a, uh, a scanning, um, synchronous scanning instrument that scans between about 450 and 600 nanometers. Huh. And um, you will um, offset those uh, so there, um, there's the uh, excitation emission wavelengths, and then you look at those and uh, you can detect the dye. Uh, presence or absence. Wow. So uh, you couldn't use up to you know five dyes at a time. So Dang. you know, well you Thank figure you. the the labor to pick up all the bugs or you know the the, the charcoal packets and that are uh, fairly extensive. So um, you do as many dye traces at the same time as you can because wow. you can separate out the dyes. 
Uh, now, this cave system, you think it's, uh, is it epigenetic or, or uh, hypogenic? What is the difference? Well, the, the mammoth cave uh, system is uh, epigenic. Um, it basically is pulling water off of uh, uh, shales, less permeable rocks to the east. Um, as that water basically is, uh, as the small creeks and streams cross onto the limestone, it sinks into the ground um, underneath the, uh, the sinkhole plain. Uh, that's located basically um, in the Mammoth Cave area, but that that uh, those carbonates extend from basically uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, north almost to Louisville, Kentucky, um, and then it flows underneath the uh, Chester Upland, which is again Pennsylvania capped uh, uh, sandstones. But that's where the the body of the Mammoth Cave is. Uh, most of it is underneath those. Uh, uh, the, uh, the the Pennsylvania cap rock, and it protects the cave from being eroded. So the, the you know the uh, escarpment is basically being eroded south over geologic time. I'm sorry, eroded um, west over geologic time, and will ultimately you know probably destroy the caves. You wow. know, 20, 30, 50 million years. Who knows? Wow. So it's it's eating its way from the east to the west. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And uh, no evidence that uh, this cave was made from uh, from below, made from a deeper... Uh, well, th- there is a little bit of... Uh, so, um, as the glaciers melted to the north um, and fed water into the streams, uh, the Green River in particular, um, it cut down, its, uh, down into the bedrock, uh, about 60 feet lower than it currently is. And as the glaciers basically disappeared... Um, the backfilling of the the sediment, and so the deepest levels of Mammoth Cave are actually about sixty feet to seventy feet below uh, current water table, the current level of the Green River. And so the springs that this uh, water discharges out of come up from uh, uh, depth, and so um, hmm. some of those springs, like uh, Turnhole Turnhole Bend Spring, um, comes up. Uh, vertically upward and um, from a big fracture system well it's a conduit you know people have dove some of those springs I don't think they've actually been able to dive into Turnhole Bend because there's a lot of sediment that's slumped into the spring but they dove dove into uh, Echo Spring and a couple of the others along the the Green River and um, been able to map map them and actually connect them to uh, parts of the uh, system of course we know they're connected through dye tracing too what is that? So we know the uh, springs are connected to the rest of the system, you know, through tracer testing, through the use of dyes and that. So we, we know uh, what conduits are basically connected to what springs, how quickly uh-huh. they'll respond to rain events. And this data is important because we have major transportation corridors that pass uh, across the, uh, the uh, Penny Royal Plain, the Sinkhole Plain. Uh, so we have a, a interstate corridor and rail traffic. And so the concern would be if there was a release of hazardous materials along that transportation corridor mm-hmm. or through gas mm-hmm. stations that are located mm-hmm. on the cities like Horse Cave, Cave City, and Park City, uh, that gasoline uh, could migrate into Mammoth Cave in a matter of hours to days. Wow. Yeah. Sheesh. And is there like some geophysical tool or some way to, to kind of map this, this system from from above um again you know it depends on uh there there are attempts to do that and sometimes they're successful there's a number of different geophysical methods that people use um ground penetrating radar doesn't seem to work very well 
up in the Mammoth Cave area because of the clay content, because there are relatively mm-hmm. thick soils of clay. Um, there, uh, I, I have spent money to try and detect them using seismic, which was unsuccessful, um, and also terrain conductivity. Uh, one technique that we did see that, that seemed to work fairly well was was called natural potential. And uh, it's a fairly unusual um, method, uh, but it looks at the streaming potential of water moving and air moving through conduits and that. And that seemed to work pretty well when we actually did a, a blind study with some geophysicists and said, run the transect, tell me if, if there's a cave there, and if so, where. And uh, they were able to detect it with MP, uh, oh, but MP. not the other techniques they used over top of it. That, so. Fascinating. Um, So the model of how the mammoth caves in this whole system has come about is that after the Pennsylvanian, there's this big body of limestone that gets made. Uh, The Mississippian limestone. Mississippi lime. Right, Mississippi lime. famous Mississippi lime all the way out in Kentucky. Five, six hundred feet thick, huh? Approximately, yeah. Holy shit. Permian Basin's got like a hundred feet of that. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it's it's associated with a world-class, you know, reservoir. Right. Uh, Okay, and then that that lime comes in, and then then you have uh, the change into the Pennsylvanian after that. Which is all mostly clastics. Okay. There's a little bit of limestone in there, but mostly it's clastics. And then at what point does that model kind of lithify or become, you know, competent rock, limestone, and start eroding away? Right. And the idea is from above, that the rainfall and glacier melt and all that stuff, water from above is getting through cracks, joints, fractures, fractures. bedding plane partings, Uh, and then basically the... um, the acidified rainfall, uh, you know, basically the water picks up uh, carbon uh, dioxide, which forms carbonic acid, and it's a weak acid given enough geologic time um, and the right geology of, you know, enough rain, uh, relatively thick limestones, potential head <clears throat> from the sinkhole plain down towards the uh, Green River, the dip of the rock, mm. etc. Uh, but surprisingly, um, there's very little faulting in the Mammoth Cave area. And the faults do not seem to control the cave. Um, there are other um, more continuous things like bedding plane partings and some fractures in places. But the Mammoth Cave area uh, isn't very uh, isn't controlled much by fractures or faults. Hmm. And that um, and of course the bedding plane you know, partings are continuous uh, from the sinkhole plane. They go down dip to the Green River, which also helped enhance the uh, the uh, formation of the cave and then over geologic time <coughs> the <coughs> excuse me over geologic time the um, um, the aggressive water basically has removed you know the uh, the uh, limestone and created these you know massive conduits that you can now walk through and are part of the longest cave in the world now do you think that during that whole model the uh the natural springs and the the way the water's coming up the fractures from around the the caves like you talked about these conduits yeah. and bringing in the water from from deeper do you think that was running the whole time um <clears throat> well it looks like there um the levels of wa- the levels of the cave are related to terrace deposits uh out on the surface and so the green river probably controlled 
the um, the level uh, the active level of formation of the cave, and as the river has cut down over geologic time, um, deeper layers uh, the the uh, conduits in the deeper part were basically eroded out, dissolved, and and activated. And mm-hmm. so, it probably was more of a top down. You know, the higher levels were formed first. The next lower levels were formed next, et cetera. And currently, the active levels right now, you can actually go into parts of Mammoth Cave and see the uh, stream. They used to do actually tourist boat rides on the Echo River, and that and um, and so. Uh, you know, and of course, us as cavers, we walk through some of those streams and places, Man. and mapping the caves. And the bottom of the cave right now sits on top of the P- Pennsylvania. Uh, the, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, it sits on. Um, I believe it's Mississippi now. You're talking 30 years <laughs> <laughs> since I've worked up there. Yeah. So um, they're sitting on a less permeable. I think it's the Salem Warsaw Formation. It's, uh, it's Mississippian, not Devonian. So. Uh, I think, if I remember right, it's Mississippian. It's lower Mississippian. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And that, so. Man. Okay. That's really interesting stuff. Really interesting. These cave, the cave systems are massive. I can't believe that. They're, they're in the, and there's a good map of that? There's a oh, good, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you got, like, GPS data points of the crews that are, like, walking and mapping these? Well, uh, GPS doesn't work in the cave. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the entrances are tied in usually with a very high quality, like the Allolite survey from a known benchmark. So the quality of the, um, the survey is actually very high. And the mapping process that we use in caves is basically a uh, high-precision compass like a Brunton or a Sunto that you can read down to about a half a degree. And then a clinometer, so you can look at the angle, so vertical angle, and then a tape. And so commonly use a steel tape wow. or you use a, um, use a, a, a fiberglass tape and you go from basically from point to point to point, wow. or what we call station to station to station. Yeah. Wow. And at the same time, you're doing a sketch in, a, in your field book. And so you're noting, you know, the, the width of the passage, the height of the passage, whether you're in a stream, uh, any other, you know, sediments, anything else that you might see, formations, uh, biology, archaeology. You know, and there are places in Mammoth Cave where you know there are bare Indian footprints from 3,000 years what? ago, with you know with sandals, uh, parts of sandals and fragments. You know, Mammoth Cave was you know known by the uh, the Native Americans and was utilized, and they went miles back into the cave. There are cane torches that have been left in the cave, and uh, wow. occasional yeah. people. <laughs> so um, wow, you're looking at the yeah folks back in the cave days. Yeah. And you know, my, my very first cave was Mammoth Cave. When I was 12 years old, we went down to visit my uncle. Okay. And he took us to Mammoth Cave. And um, in the uh, early 70s, I guess, probably late 60s, and, um, and uh, you know, got to tour the cave. And, of course, at that point, I was hooked. So Sounds like it. Yeah. Wow. So, right on. Okay. So uh, you spend most of your career then uh, running, uh, doing hydrology, groundwater, cave mapping yeah well after after i graduated from uh, western kentucky university and that and was working um for the national park service net um the state of kentucky um was given a grant by us epa to create a groundwater program um and i was actually hired uh to manage that program mm. create that program management so i was the first employee for the uh, groundwater section in the state of kentucky's uh, division of water 
did the hiring of all the new staff. Um, I think part of it was because um, at that time, most people who were studying high, uh, were studying geology at the master's level were going into oil and gas, and I was one of the few people who was interested in hydro. Sure. And matter of fact, I think I'm one of the few people that probably is still working out of my undergraduate class in geology. Most of you know, because because come the early to mid '80s, uh, there was this huge downturn in the oil right. and gas industry, and most right. of those folks were laid off and had to reinvent themselves as either environmental geologists or, or you know, computer programmers or whatever sure. you know they could find. Um, so I went and managed the Kentucky uh, Division of Water, wrote the uh, water manage- groundwater management plan for the state. Um, and uh, got to testify in front of the state legislature oh, a couple man, times. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and um, uh, really interesting career move. But um, after three and a half years of basically being a regulator and uh, developing regulations for water well drilling in the state of Kentucky, no kidding. that was under us. Uh, yeah, we had no no regulations or, or uh, you know, at that time you, anybody could drill a hole in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> And uh, that was a very interesting, was taking a bunch of uh, drillers and requiring that they get licensed and to drill wells under. Um, but it was really interesting because we served, um, we created a thing called the Water Well Drillers Advisory Board, and I basically was the staff person for that. And we brought in um, water well drillers from around the state, folks we recognize as being um experts in the field, mm-hmm. uh, master water well drillers, et cetera. And we spent two years basically going through every type of um, drilling condition that you would find in the state of Kentucky. And so it was a you know, a PhD level education from a bunch of water well drillers who um, uh, spent literally days and days and days going over uh, you know, how, the, how a well is drilled in Eastern Kentucky versus the Jackson Purchase uh, and Western Kentucky the versus different things they run into. Every one of them, uh, you know, everything from cable tool, air rotary, um, wow. you know, uh, you know, to uh, auger rigs, et cetera, you know, bucket rigs as they call them. And so it was a uh, an excellent education working with some incredibly fine drillers. Wow. Uh, yeah, excellent. a friend of ours is a hydrologist for one of the big uh, consulting companies in Fort Worth and doing. Uh, that she she basically writes all the reports of like here's a a neighborhood of 2000 homes how many wells are they going to need you know drilled the uh the whole concept of yeah. you know f- uh, feeding uh fresh water getting fresh water from shallow crust to uh to the yeah to the processing plants and to people's homes yep. and what a interesting uh an interesting idea where yeah. do you I, so i had some experience in my undergrad i got to go uh, to the oroville dam in california and i got to let, sit in on the legislations uh, of of the farming community saying this is our water the cities of of southern california saying we don't have any water we need your water uh for our city and then uh and then you got just uh you know on, on top of that i guess the the people who just live there and yeah. want to use the water, you know, how are you, how do they manage that? And how are they traveling that water? How is it all, you know, how are you being fair about all that? And then you got to worry about the fish. There was a massive fish problem because, yeah. you know, these things are swimming around and you're trying to divert that. Uh, and it's not yeah. going well. You're, you're, you're messing up fish population. Yeah. So it was a super complex and they, the history was amazing. I mean, yeah. when they started building those, uh, 
the uh, the aqueducts. Yeah. Man, the, the people that lived along those aqueducts were shooting the construction workers and shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is wow. my water. What are you doing? You know, right. they didn't understand what was going on. And yeah. they're like, hey, this might, you know, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. So what they did to sal- uh, salvage a lot of those people, they get like a super crazy discount on their water. Yeah. So that's how they yeah, do that. The uh, Western Water Law and Western Water Wars are uh, quite interesting. And that, um, but you know, it was interesting because I worked three and a half years for the state of Kentucky, and it was a great, uh, great experience. Um, I was very fortunate to work under two, you know, wonderful mentors, Bob Ware and uh, Don Harker, and um, they really helped develop my career. But after three and a half years, I wanted to actually get more hands-on experience, so I left. <clears throat> went to work for a company called ATEC hmm. Associates, which was an environmental and geotechnical engineering firm. And I went down and set up their program in, um, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. So I went from Frankfort, Kentucky to Nashville, Tennessee. And there we did um, uh, sinkhole collapse issues, which wow. uh, I'd had some experience with already. Uh, living in the, in the Bowling Green area and working in Kentucky. And I, I got to work on a number of environmental problems in Kentucky while I was there with the Division of Water. Uh, lots of PCB issues associated with um, discharges into sinkholes and, and the subsurface and that. Um, I, um, uh, but I, I wanted to get more hands-on. So I, uh, I left and went to um, ATEC where we Basically, it was the early days. Uh, this was, I guess, 1986. I went to 1986 and went to um, uh, ATEC Associates where we did a lot of underground storage tank and landfill work. And I ran their environmental programs for three and a half years. And, um, and then at that point, uh, took another position with a company called Eckenfelder, uh, which was also in Nashville. And that group did a large... Uh, environmental projects. So uh, basically, I ended up being a uh, a uh, program manager and uh, director of uh, their karst uh, uh, hydrology program, and uh, basically managed Superfund sites, large NPL sites, national priority list sites. So uh, I worked on projects all over the East Coast, um, and uh, you know chased a lot of contaminant. Wow. Um, you know, uh, probably the most notable project was, um, well, I had a couple of more. There was some large chemical industries in the Paducah area where we um, did their RICRA monitoring, their uh, Resource Conservation Recovery Act uh, monitoring, and um, their quarterly monitoring where we sampled, you know, probably 30 or 40 monitoring wells in a place where they made um, uh CFCs, you know, basically, yeah, basically, um, their equivalent to uh, um, Freon. It was refrigerants, and uh, they also made uh, a number of other things there. They made lindane, which is a pesticide, or at one time did. They also made, um, they had a, a process where they would use mercury to pull oh, chlorine wow. gas out of brines. Wait, pull the what out of the uh, brine? Pour chlorine, you know, uh, so they would take chlorine. Chlorine out of the brines. Yeah, so that, you know, high high concentration salt brines, and they would use this uh, process where they would uh, use a mercury cell to pull the chlorine out. Wow, for and then what? Pour, well, th- th- that would feed into their stocks for uh, their other processes that were oh, going shit. on there. Wow. They also made um, roofing tiles there uh, because the um, 
fluorinated uh, hydrocarbons are basically um, fairly inert. And now they're, they're turning out to be these, what they call them forever compounds, the PFOS compounds. So this is one of the pl plants that made it. And uh, they used to, used to take um, uh, fluorite from the, from the floor spar mines over in, in, in uh, Cairo, Illinois, mm -hmm. and bring it into the plant, roast it, and make hydrofluoric acid, which is Whoa. fairly aggressive, as you yeah. might imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then they would take that and mix it with a carbon tetrachloride and make, uh, you know, carbon fluorinated carbon compounds. Fluorinated carbon yeah. compounds. Yeah. So basically, um, refrigerants. What? The? Well, uh, one thing I'd like to go back and talk about is you talked about geophysics, and um, there was a effort at Mammoth Cave National Park to install some monitoring wells into some of the conduits, the large cave passages that have water moving them. So. Uh, Dr. Quinlan had obtained some grant money to drill some wells, but um, considering the length of distance from the entrance to the locations that he was interested in having these drilled, which might be miles, um, a, a small error in the compass reading could throw the location uh, on the surface where he wanted to drill off by hundreds of feet. And so uh, there is a geophysical technique called a cave radio that we use to pinpoint mm. our location on the surface. Wow. So, so it, was a, uh, it was a transmitter and a receiver, and the transmitter was a coil of wire about uh, two and a half feet in diameter that was mounted on a piece of uh, plywood that we had to carry way back into this cave. Um, and then you have to lay it exactly horizontal, and it creates this wave. Um, basically, it looks like a donut. Um, and then there's someone on the surface with a similar coil that's tuned to the uh, same frequency. Wow. And they walk over the surface until they don't get a signal. And when you don't get a signal, you're exactly on top of it. Uh -huh. And then you can move back, let's say 100 feet, and you can tip Feel the big. coil so that it's parallel to the waves that are being created, and you get a null signal also, so you now know the angle. So you can use simple trig to wow. basically calculate how deep to drill. And so we had to do a number of these. Um, one of them, uh, two of them were over 450 feet deep, and we drilled directly into the passage uh, using this, uh, you know, the passage was 20 to 30 feet wide, five to 10 feet high. Nailed it. Uh, nailed it. Um, now, there was uh, some that we drilled that were not, um, they made it into the passage, but not right into the middle of the passage. And uh, so myself and another fellow um, had to go in um, into the cave and um, basically cut a hole in the PVC casing so that we could then run the uh, instrumentation out and put it in the middle of the stream and that. So uh, we went uh, into the cave, a multi-mile long trip, uh, many hours carrying all kinds of equipment. Um, we also drilled a new entrance into the cave, and that one we located again with the cave radio, and it was only about 55 feet below the surface to the room that we were drilling into. Um, and we drilled um, a series of different sized bits, I think, the uh, you know, piled hole of like six inches to make sure that you know we, we got into it. And then I think the next bit was 17 and a half inches. 
and it drilled Jeez. all the way into the hole. Holy smokes. And then we came in with another bit that was about 26 inches. Holy smokes. And the problem is, is that Jim was trying to save money, and so he bought a used large <laughs> diameter drill bit. And about 25 feet down, he twisted off the, uh, no. basically the drill cones. And they dropped down into the cave, and so uh, we had to go get them. <laughs> and to get into the cave required 125-foot rappel, and then uh, hours of you know, crawling and you know, walking and crawling and swimming and to get to the place where this entrance was. Yeesh. And uh, so we got to the bottom of the entrance. We could look up. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, 55 feet to the surface. And uh, we put the, uh, the broken off, you know, drill cones, I guess, you know, the roller bit into a bag. And the guys hauled it off of the surface and that. And then uh, Jim lowered down two personal pan pizzas and two beers. <laughs> and we had lunch there, which was quite a treat and surprise. And then it was real interesting because the guy I was with um, had been involved with the... Uh, um, exploration of the end of the stream passage um, upstream on what's called the Hawkins Logson River and um, he had um, poked around in this breakdown pile uh, with some other folks and think he found a way on through and made in essence what was the connection between Robble Cave which was about 75 miles long at the time and Mammoth Cave which was about I think 290 miles long at the time map passage the uh, connection was actually made uh, a few months later um, by some people that went into uh, two different entrances and met in the middle and surveyed and tied the two caves together. So we were coming in about two months later, three months later. This was, uh, I think it was November. And um, Chris said, well, I think we should go out a different entrance. And I said, well, you know, the entrance out the Proctor Cave you know, entrance was, um, had, uh, the ropes weren't rigged. And so you couldn't ascend from the bottom. You had to come in from the top. And, uh, the, the entrance out of what's called the Ferguson entrance wasn't rigged either. That's a 55 foot climb, um, out. And so we couldn't go out that way. And so Chris said, no, I, I think we'd, I'd like to go out Ropple, which was about a six mile trip out. Jeez. So we got, uh, so I said, well, okay. So we went upstream, crawled through the breakdown pile where Chris crawled, uh, popped out through the breakdown to a stream that was coming downstream, which was the upstream portion of the Logston River. And we uh, walked and crawled and swam. Of course, we didn't have wetsuits on, so this was pretty crazy. Uh, the, connect the initial connection, which didn't go in the entrances we went in, that went in much closer entrances to the connection than that, um, carried in wetsuits. So Chris and I were wading in chest-deep water and swimming in a few places, and then came to what's called the S-163 sump in Ropple Cave, which had about four inches of airspace. Oh, my god! And gosh. we pushed on through that and came oh up in Ropple Cave. Um, of course, I uh, managed to hit my shin on a piece of rock that was under the water and, and laid a big hole in it, and it was bleeding, and that we got there and got a first aid kit, got it stopped. Jeez. And then we crawled out the Ropple entrance, which had a gate you could open from the inside. And uh, we got out about 11 o'clock at night, and uh, it was about 36 and misty. Oh, my god! And we gosh. had to walk about five miles back. Oh, my gosh. So we, uh, we were walking down the dirt road, and this car comes down the road, and it turns out that I knew the guy who he lived in the farm there right by the cave. And 
he said, uh, uh, we asked him if he could give us a ride back. He said, sure, get in. And of course, we're just covered with mud. And we said, no, no, you know, why don't you get your truck and we'll just, you know. And he goes, okay. So he parks his car, gets his truck, comes and gets us. And we drive about a mile down the road. And the car runs out of gas. Oh, my so God. It's about midnight now, and he goes and beats on this door, and somebody comes to the door with a shotgun, and the guy oh comes out, and, uh, and uh, he calls his wife, who gets the kids up and gets in the car and drives us over to our car about, again, you know, by road that was probably about 10 miles away. And, uh, and we gave him, like, 20 bucks, you know, which was for a ride. We drove back, and Jim uh, was excited because we were way overdue and nobody knew where we were yeah, and it was pretty gonzo cave trip um and he's so we i told him i said jim you know we uh, we got really lost coming out he goes oh my god and i said we we walked around walked around for hours until we found this other entrance and we said we better get out while the getting out was good so we came out this other entrance he goes oh my gosh you know what cave entrance was it and i said well it was the uh the Rappel entrance he goes oh you connected the caves didn't you he goes <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He said, well, I'm going to dock you pay. How much was that? And it's uh, like, oh, I don't know, a couple hours, you know. So he supposedly docked her pay three hours or something. But um, What? Yeah, Chris and I uh, yeah, made, the, made just by ourselves out there, you know, miles and miles away from where anybody would have ever looked for us. Yeah. Um, and that, but we were, we were probably some of the best cavers in the country at the time. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we were caving two yeah. to three times a week, you know, doing yeah. very long trips and hard trips and vertical trips and that super so. unique yeah experience. so so after that they were drilling the two wells into the cave and um one of the drill bits jammed in the hole and uh so i uh this was again late in the year and i had to go in and, and basically uh see if we could fix that so um from inside the cave which i wasn't optimistic about so um uh, I was the only one who was available at the time. All the other cavers who were working in the summer basically gone back to school and yeah. respected places. And, that. and so uh, I called up George Venny, who was a graduate student at Western, to see if he would go with me in that. And, um, you know, uh, Jim at the time was in getting a quadruple bypass. And so he said, do whatever you got to do. And he uh, got us all lined up. Um, we carried in two duffel bags full of... Um, tubing and hoses and um, uh, 10 pounds of what I'll call Dr. Nobel's Instacave, if you know what I mean. And we mm -hmm. went in and built a ladder of the drill bit was sticking out of the ceiling of the cave. And I think he, they left it overnight when they punched into the cave. And then some material had fell in and jammed and kept them from pulling uh, the drill bit out. Yeah. And so we uh, basically built a, uh, a wooden ladder and ran it up against the, the drill bit and inserted about 10 pounds of, uh, of Tovex, um, which is a type of explosive, up around to see if we could shake the drill bit loose. And uh, George and I ran the wire down the passage to a breakdown pile and got up on the breakdown pile. And uh, we, uh, <laughs> uh, George insisted that we move higher up on the breakdown pile. And it's like, well, okay, I guess, you know. And we touched it off with our, our wheat lamps, uh, these electric lights that we were using. And uh, it was basically like an air burst, and it knocked us both to the ground. Damn it. And we laid there, laughed, and <laughs> once our hearing came back, and, <laughs> and this big wave of water came down and splashes up onto the breakdown pile and rushes back down the passage, you know, from the blast wave. And it didn't do anything at all oh, to the drill bit. Yeah. <laughs> 
So George and I were coming out of the cave, and we actually went into the drilled entrance, the Doyle, what's called the Doyle Valley entrance, that was still only 17 and a half inches in diameter. And so uh, I had rigged up a system where we could haul, get lowered in and get hauled out from the surface and that with a, with a, a mechanical advantage system in that. And so uh, the problem is, is it was about five degrees out on the surface and they'd left the lid of the cave entrance, this drill hole off. And so this cave was just sucking in all this cold oh, air. Shoot. So when we got into the room, the uh, cave being 56 degrees and you know, 100% you know, humidity, it just turned into fog. And so as we walk into the room, you couldn't see your feet on the floor. And we couldn't find the hole. And oh, so I finally got on our hands and knees because you can't really see where you're walking. We crawled around the left side of the wall because I knew the, that entrance was around there somewhere. Came to the flowstone mound and went up the flowstone mound to the bottom of the entrance, which was clear. You could see that because it was just cold air rushing in. Jeez. Hooked onto the, uh, hooked onto the uh, rope. The guys on the surface pulled us out. Um, we're in wetsuits covered with mud and exhausted net. And the driller was there. And he... Uh, um, he thanked us and that. We went back in later doing the exact same thing. To uh, He had managed to get the drill bit loose, but the actual drill cone had come off. The drill bit Damn had come right. off, fell in the cave. Yeah. So he ran a cable down the drill hole. We ran it through the, uh, the drill bit, put a couple cable clamps on it, and he pulled it back to the surface. So then we come out of the cave. It took us three or four hours to get out of the cave. We get pulled out of the surface and that. And um, he's there, and he says... Uh, uh, you know, we're peeling out of our wetsuits and things. And he says, hey, you boys look like you could use some hamburgers. Here's a hundred dollars, you know, and there was, so <laughs> yeah, you the saved them 20,000. Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and that, um, so about six months later, I get this job working for the state of Kentucky and it turns out the water well drillers, same uh, guy, same guy. He comes in and goes, you know, last time I saw you, you were in a rubber suit <laughs> <laughs> and we developed a great friendship and he was a, a, a great mentor and friend and taught me a great deal about the nuances of drilling wells and cars. Oh, so um, crazy days working for the park, you know. Man. It's amazing what you'll do for 425 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Graduate students are expendable. <laughs> well, especially when you're having fun. You That's know? when you're having fun. I couldn't believe getting paid 425 an hour just to map virgin caves, <laughs> you know, and occasional drill bits and maybe, you know, getting blown up. But, you know, other than that. So, uh, Wow. We managed to get the drill bit and got the wells fixed and things. So, um, wow. That was crazy. Yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> let's, uh, we'll start the drill down segment of the PBE podcast. Uh, and this is going to be, let's, let's teach me a little bit of uh, the difference. You get two kind of fundamentally different uh, caves that get made, okay. uh, the, the yeah. top-down system right. and then the bottom-up system. So um, there's um, you know, a great deal of uh, work that's been done in classifying um, groundwater systems and karst. Um, the two primary ones that uh, people are most familiar with are the epigenic processes, which is bottom down. So rain falls, uh, it coalesces, it you know goes into a sinkhole, goes into a conduit, um, flows underground uh, with rapid groundwater velocities of as much as a mile per day or Jeez. more, and discharges at a spring. Um, and those are what you see commonly in the um, central U.S., the Mammoth Cave area, uh, 
that Mississippi and limestone that, that you know, and uh, in Kentucky and also the uh, Cumberland Plateau and, and many of the other caves in Tennessee area um, and uh, also in West Virginia and some of the other major caving areas and that. So um, it's not uncommon to be able to walk along some of these conduits. And the advantage to it is mapping caves is it allows you to see the fabric of the aquifer. It's one of the few places, because if you think about traditional groundwater, it's really a remote sensing science mm -hmm. because you don't get to see the aquifer. Mm -hmm. You get to sense it through a well, through instrumentation. Mm -hmm. You might be able to shine a light down the well and see the top of the water surface and that. But in reality, um, we collect data out of these wells. We do aquifer tests, et cetera, and that. But to actually, uh, we may be able to pull up a core, we may be able to pull up cuttings, et cetera. So you get a very small uh, view right. of a very large aquifer. And these karst systems, uh, we can sometimes enter them, and you can map out and look at what is the controlling of uh, the, the fabric of the aquifer. You know, Are we looking at bedding plane partings? Are we looking at fractures? Are we what faults? What roles do all those play in uh, controlling groundwater? Um, and so in some of these systems like the Mammoth Cave, there are places where you can walk for literally miles along these stream, underground streams. Um, and, um, and you can also do dye tracing, which allows you to understand, again, the, the groundwater velocities, which are important for spill response and hazardous materials, and also interconnectedness to either springs and or public water supply mm -hmm. wells as well as domestic wells. Um, in the last 20 years or so, there has been um, more interest, I, I should say, in looking at systems that may be confined that are still karst. And probably the best example of that would be the Edwards Aquifer here in San Antonio. And um, we have been able to look at some of the caves in this area uh, that are old Paleo Springs that uh, you can go into and look at them and try and understand their mechanism of formation, uh, what's, what's controlling the, um, the, um, the uh, major flow paths, the conduits mm -hmm. and that. Uh, but in dealing with a, a system like the Edwards Aquifer, which is uh, very deep uh, in many places where wells are drilled that are over 1,000 feet deep, Jeez. you know, to pull up water. And in some places, the aquifer is as much as 3,000 feet deep. Wow. Um, and still fresh water. Wow. Um, how is that different from these epigenic systems? Mm -hmm. um, and I've been looking at these things because um, to be able to transmit huge volumes of water through the aquifer rapidly, to be able to get large springs like... Comel Springs and San Marcos Springs and Goodenough Springs and San Felipe Springs and Barton Springs. Uh, these are major, major discharge points. Um, if you look at the type locality temperate karst area, uh, Mammoth Cave being an example, the largest springs in that area may be one cubic, uh, one cubic meter per second discharge um, and maybe a little bit bigger during uh, storm events and that. Uh, the discharge at Comel Springs is, ranges from 5 to 10 cubic meters per Whoa. second. So these are massive springs. Yeah. Um, so these springs must have um, large, large catchment areas, you know, especially since you're looking at the difference of rainfall in the Mammoth Cave areas, let's say 45 inches, whereas here is 26 to 30 inches maybe, or 22 inches farther west. Um, these must be massive catchment systems. How are you saying that? What's the word you're using? A catchment. How do you spell that? A C-A-T-C-H, -C -C catchment. 
uh, you know, uh, the uh, contributing zone for the aquifer. So the watershed that feeds and recharges water to the aquifer and the aquifer system itself must be very large. Okay. okay. And it's not coming from above here. Well, it, it has to somewhere. And so what you get are these regional systems like the Edwards where you have rainfall falling on the Edwards Plateau to the north of San Antonio and onto the hill country, which is the dissected Edwards Plateau. Mm -hmm. And as you move farther south, you intersect the Balcones Fault Zone, <clears throat> which pushes the uh, Edwards Limestone vertically downward below the surface. Uh -huh. So as water comes off of the catchment, off the watershed, Basically, it flows south, and as it intersects the Edwards limestone, it sinks into the ground. Okay, in those areas, uh, you have a water table, uh, and you there are some caves that we can go see the surface of the water table in. There are not too many, but there are some that allow you to basically go into the cave, of you know, work your way vertically downward, uh, sometimes hundreds of feet and actually see the surface of the water table of the Edwards Aquifer. But the faulting takes the Edwards farther, uh, deeper as you go south. And so, yeah. uh, for example, in Medina County, um, <clears throat> the Edwards Limestone in, in southern Medina County may be 3,000 feet below the surface. Okay? Wow. So you've got this Edwards Limestone that's anywhere from about 450 to 1,000 feet thick, depending on where you're looking at. And it's fully saturated in what's called the artesian zone, okay? So we can't physically go in into those uh, through cave diving or other techniques. Again, we're back to remote sensing the aquifer through wells. And so we would go in and we would map um, the potentiometric surface, the water level, uh, how high water will rise in the wells above the, the artesian surface. Hmm. And the top of the Edwards, um, is confined from the Del Rio clay. So looking at the stratigraphy in that, we have the Glen Rose limestone below the Edwards limestone. We then have the Edwards limestone, which is the primary aquifer in the area. And then we have the Del, uh, Del Rio clay, which is basically this confining unit. Wow. That's about 40 to 60 feet thick. Wow. So um, the water is basically captured in between the, um, the uh, Del Rio and the, and the Glen Rose. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, water system has uh, a hydraulic head to it with aquifer elevations higher in the western part of the system in, let's say, Uvalde County. Okay. And the uh, discharge points, which are San Antonio and San Pedro Springs here in San Antonio, Comel Springs, which is in, uh, in um, uh, Comel County, and then San, uh, uh, San Marcos Springs, in Hayes County. Wow. These are the discharge points for the aquifer. Um, <clears throat> so the water system, the, the Comel Springs appears to come up along the Comel Springs Fault, and the artesian zone basically is at a depth of about 600 feet there. So water's coming vertically upward out of the, uh, the Edwards limestone to discharge at Comel Springs. Wow. There also appears to be some contribution of the um, of the recharge zone, the area where the Edwards limestone is exposed on the surface at Comel, because that fault has about 800 feet of displacement along it. Wow, the Balcones. Okay. About, well, the Comel, the, Comel. the Comel Springs Fault does, yeah. The, the, the Balcones Fault Zone um, has as much as 3,000 feet of displacement along certain faults, you know, so it's a series of, of 
parallel or in echelon faults wow. that go down to the south. Okay. Um, there, uh, so, so there's water flowing from the west, uh, probably somewhere, there's a groundwater divide somewhere in the uh, east of Brackettville, because um, there's uh, Fort Clark Spring, um, and water flows uh, down gradient towards Comel Springs and San Antonio, San Pedro, Comel, and San Marcos Springs, which are located to the east, um, and which is why these cities are where they are. So, you know, Bear, Bear County, sure. I mean, uh, San Antonio was basically founded uh, around these water supplies, uh, right. San, San Pedro and San Antonio Springs. New Braunfels is located, you know, at Comel Springs, and San Marcos Springs, uh, you know, is where uh, San Marcos is. So... So why do these deep, complex carbonate systems, these karst systems, form at depth? Um, normally, you would think that as the water would flow in from the surface to recharge the aquifer, it absorbs carbonic acid, and then once it meets the, the Edwards uh, limestone, at some point, it basically saturated. So how do you get deep, uh, deep um, conduit flow systems um, in the aquifer at you know, thousands of feet below the surface. And we know they're there because we see things like drill bit drops and we see, you know, significantly, you know, some large, you know, uh, part, bedding plane partings and vugular porosity in that mm -hmm. through our well cam. So how do you, um, how do you get this? And we think that, uh, I think, there are other people who will disagree with me, uh, there are a couple things. You get a mixing corrosion issue when you take two waters that may be saturated, but you mix them together. You um, what happens is the water becomes unsaturated and can absorb a little bit more calcium carbonate. Mm. Um, that was shown through some work by uh, uh, Dr. Bogley um, because the um, the mixing of the waters is a linear, but the curve for dissolution is is uh, is not is yes asymptotic. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, and so that's been well studied in that. So we think we have some mixing corrosion. But the other issue is um, that we see a high concentration of hydrogen sulfide mm. in the wells that are down gradient of what's called the the saline water freshwater interface or what is also known as the bad water line. Um, it appears that there are bacteria that live on the chemical gradient between the high saline water and the fresh water. Mm. And they take the sulfates and convert them to sulfides and outgas hydrogen sulfide. Wow. And when you mix that with fresh water, you form sulfuric acid. Holy shit. And so the bacteria, um, so the, the high porosities, which are, occur throughout the Edwards artesian zone, are probably uh, created by uh, this biologic component. Wow. Okay. And so, that's kind of on a line, huh? This contact, this kind it's of... contact, yeah. And it's, we've we've mapped it roughly, you know, pretty pretty uh, pretty well refined mapping, you know. And we used, I think, it's a thousand TDS total dissolved solids. So anything uh, less than a thousand TDS is um, fresh water, it's and anything over that, that is saline water. What else issue. changes across that contrast? Um, so. We found that 
the permeabilities that you see in the artesian zone are uh, pretty consistent. You can drill a well almost anywhere in the Edwards, and you will only be limited, physically limited, by the uh, size of your pump and, and the diameter wow. of your hole. Um, there are wells that have that yield 5,000 gallons a minute, which have virtually no drawdown. Jeez. Yeah, so the permeabilities are are extremely high yeah okay whereas if you were drilling a well in one of the epigenic karst areas like mammoth cave you might drill 100 wells and you might get one to three to five gallons per minute out of a particular well unless you got lucky and hit one of the conduits uh dr quinlan used to make the analogy that hitting a conduit in the mammoth cave area even though we've got 400 miles of map cave would be like throwing a dart at the map of the united states and hitting the mississippi river you might do it (laughs) But chances are you're, you're yeah. probably not. Um, wow. And so there are some wells that yield hundreds of gallons a minute uh, in some of these areas. Uh, most of them like don't. And even in the recharge zone of the Edwards, most of the wells there yield a few gallons per minute. Okay. But down in the deep artesian zone, um, we, uh, we see these incredibly high permeabilities. And I think what has happened is you have a positive feedback loop and over geologic time, that saline water, freshwater interface has migrated south and also east, uh, down gradient. So um, five million years ago, the saline water zone was uh, much closer to the recharge zone. Mm. And as the sulfuric acid process occurs, it creates larger permeability, which increases the ability for more water to move through it, wow. which increases the, uh, the ability to dissolve out more rock. And so you get this positive feedback loop and you start integrating these very large drainage networks. Yeah. And so um, what, uh, what we think is happening is, is that these um, uh, bacteria are basically feeding off this chemical gradient between the saline water and freshwater zone. Yeah. And they have developed a very a well-developed ecology right there on the saline water, freshwater interface. So at depth, there are two different species of catfish that live in the aquifer that along the saline water, freshwater interface that have only been observed when they've been basically pulled out of wells and uh, captured in nets. Um, There's catfish. Catfish, yeah. In the Edwards Aquifer. Yeah, blind catfish. They have no. They have. Uh, they're white. They have no eyes. They have no air bladder because they don't need one. What? And they the... living fat. They're living fat and happy at, in the Edwards Aquifer. One of them has a sucker mouth and eats bacteria. The other one has teeth and is probably a predator. There are over 60 different species of. of uh, of animals that have been identified the isopods copepods shrimp is uh, that right in the aquifer in the aquifer blind uh, leeches you know and to be able to have a parasite like a leech you have to have uh, something for it to live on so uh, we have a number of different salamander species that are found near the springs but not in the deep well so we've there there have been catfish pulled out of wells located over by the uh, um, uh the um uh what is it the um uh, uh at&t um spurs center yeah you know, the uh, ba- basketball arena 
you know, the fairgrounds. There yeah. are a couple large wells there that have uh, that have uh, catfish. that had catfish come out of them. The well, no-eyed ones or the teeth? No-eyed ones. Well, oh. all of them. The uh, the two catfish that live in the uh, in the aquifer are both blind. They have no eyes. They don't have any need for them. Um, but one lives in the fresh. No, they they both live in the fresh water. They all oh, all these critters the live on the fresh water side, right on the edge of the. Uh, Sailing water, freshwater interface. But one of them's feeding on that interface with the sucker fish right. is feeding on that interface. Correct. Yeah. What do you call this interface again? What's the name it's of it? Uh, well, it's known locally as the bad water line, but in, we also call it the sailing water, freshwater interface. And it's generally... And through a, geologic time, yeah. the idea is that it was, it was higher, but now it's... It's, it's, it's migrated uh, from, from north to, to south, north south and from... from West from to west east. to east so the aquifer curves you know from san antonio it basically goes northeast but for, uh towards san marcus or from san antonio it goes basically due west towards uvalde so there's kind of looks like a big banana yeah just <laughs> so, like the balcones yeah. zone the, the catfish are only known from bear county uh pretty much and maybe a little bit of, of medina wow. um, they're very very hard to to sample because you have to put nets you know to catch them uh, <laughs> your water wells right and the problem is is most of these water wells are not being used to recover catfish yeah. they're being used <laughs> for water supply so they'll go out into an irrigation system or into a public water supply the catfish are probably not very common but yeah. we certainly have detected them um now there are some techniques called env environmental dna where you don't have to catch a catfish all you have to do is catch some cells and uh those techniques may be applied to better understand the uh the extent of um of the, the presence of the catfish yeah, yeah but you know sampling is extremely difficult just for yeah. the you know, catfish can't imagine yeah that's crazy yeah. i yeah that's really blowing my mind uh okay and then we talked uh briefly about the the style of cave system of the guadalupe mountains in the permian basin correct this is uh now considered to be hypogenic Hypogenic. Right. Is that, am Hypogenic, I saying that right? right? Hypogenic, meaning it's coming from below. Right. And it ate away at the rocks from a, a right. down up. <clears throat> and that's why you see in, in uh, Carlsbad Caverns and then also another cave <clears throat> that's even bigger called the Lechaguilla uh, Cave, um, which Carlsbad's about 20, 26 miles, I think, of map passage, and Lechaguilla is over 100 miles. Wow. Lechaguilla was. Mountains. Yeah. So Lechaguilla was. Um, discovered in the i think mid 80s so it's a relatively wow. new discovery um both of them appear to be driven by this uh, sulfuric acid process mm. and the uh, water levels have dropped over geologic time and we can now enter those caves and so the it, the hydro, the uh, sulfuric acid process explains why there are massive gypsum deposits in places wow. like carlsbad and lechaguilla there's elemental sulfur in Lechaguilla Cave that's been identified. Wow. Um, there are very weird, bizarre formations in both caves. Um, that bizarre are, how? Um, gigantic uh, gypsum chandeliers. Is that uh, right? Some of them 10 to 15 feet long. They just stick out of the walls like daggers. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, they're amazing. Wow. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, so, yeah, and so the cave's got also um, a number of other unique formations in it that are wow. uh, have you unusual. heard about the uh, project gnome 
in the Guadalupe's where they went and, and they uh, set off a nuclear warhead. Yeah, I've been to that site. You have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Man, so, I wouldn't want to be close to that. You don't think what? there's still radiation pinging no. off the walls? Uh, well, you don't. You can't go in it. Oh. It's just a marker on the surface. Oh. And that, and then of course there's the WIP site nearby too. What's that? A uh, waste isolation pilot project, which is near Carlsbad for uh, military high level and mid level military uh, radioactive material. Oh wow! They're and, pu- they're pumping it into a, a hole. In no, they camp? they bring it in in barrels and they uh, basically put it into this uh, salt deposit. If you ever get a chance, take a tour of it. It's fascinating. Wow. And uh, you can go it's in a big there. Big salt mine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, yes, they're mining salt, but it's mostly for uh, storage. Yeah, for storage. Now they're nearby potash mines, too. But, right. Um, but, they're, um, but the WIP site is basically um, you know, a long term repository for, uh, for radioactive material. A lot of it, I understand, is fairly low level um, uh, personal protective equipment and other stuff, but they have different levels. Uh, and some they'll stack in barrels and hallways. And then just let the salt flow over top of them. Others, they drill holes into the walls and slide the barrels in, and then put a plug back over. Um, so yeah, wow. it's, it's, I, I was fortunate enough to get a tour of, of that site once. Wow, um, very interesting. Yeah, so so the um, I'd been kind of looking at this data and scratching my head and trying to figure it out. Um, but we uh, there was a gentleman that came in from uh, Ukraine, uh, Dr. Alexander Klimchuk. And I'd met him in the 80s uh, when they were, before the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, they came over and did a tour uh, through with Derek Ford from Canada and, and toured part of the United States looking at cave and car systems mm. then. And Alexander had uh, developed this process uh, where he was evaluating some of the large gypsum, uh, gypsum um, caves in the Ukraine, uh, some of them, again, over 100 miles of map passage and that. Um, on set up on these high density networks of you know basically looks like city blocks, um, you know, so the cave density is extremely high, and uh, these caves also seem to be formed by water ascending from formation below, wow, and uh, eating out along fractures and yeah. other things. Yeah, um, he came over and um, uh, did a sabbatical with the National Cave and Karst Research Institute in Carlsbad, and I went over and was. Uh, uh, at a meeting, met with him again and invited him to come here. And so he came and stayed at my house for about two weeks uh, and also did a lecture for us at the Edwards Aquifer nice. Authority. And um, he was interested in these maze caves. And he said, uh, you know, Gary, I'd like to, I've looked at some of the maps and I'd like to go visit these caves. So I said, fine. Um, and one of the caves he wanted to visit was called Robber Baron, which is located uh, here in San Antonio near the airport. Wow. And it's a cave that's set up uh, along fractures wow. um, in uh, the um, uh, Austin Chalk. And uh, so uh, we went in the cave, and Alexander you know, was asking me what I thought about the formation of the cave. And I said, I think you're going to think I'm crazy, but I think it was formed by ascending water. And here's why. This is what I see in the cave that tells me that. And he runs around for a few minutes and says, uh, you're exactly right, except you've missed one or two other features um, and pointed those out. And once he points them out, they become real obvious. Now, to better explain yeah, the ascending. Yeah, there are vents. Uh, there, are, there are small round holes where the water comes up. And so um, he, uh, he got real excited. He said, "This is the, that cave is the best example of hypogene speleogenesis that he'd seen in the United States wow. to date." 
So I said, okay. So he said, now I'd like to go to a, another cave called Amazing Maze Cave in West Texas. And it's about, I think it's six or eight miles of map passage, again, set up on these fracture patterns. Wow. Extreme high density. And of course, we go in there and we find, um, I believe it was a, an indolite clay, which is a waxy kind of clay that forms from the breakdown uh, from sulfuric acid, uh, certain carbonates and that. And then he said, no, this is the best example I've seen of hypogene speleogenesis in the U.S. And then we went to, uh, then we went to uh, Caverns of Sonora oh, yeah, and took yeah. him in that cave. And uh, he uh, uh, got very excited. And um, there's also some weird mineralogy there. Um, some uh, vanadium, uh, uranium wow. sulfate minerals that are uh, wow. very unusual. Uh, Metatiamonite, I think is the word. Um, and he thought that cave also, he said this cave is also formed by hydrogen sulfide and rising uh, water from depth wow. and that. And these, are, these caves are basically uh, probably formed at the end of very long regional flow paths. So the water comes into the recharge zone, flows horizontally and probably some vertical gradient down depth, and then it comes to the discharge point and the water comes up. Okay, so you've got water in the recharge area that goes down like we do at the Edwards. Mm -hmm. You have it flow into the artesian zone, and then it flows you know, vertically or horizontally over to discharge at Comel and San Marcos Springs. And that, and that water there comes up from great depth. Okay. Wow. So um, the caves that we're looking at, like Amazing Maze, Robert Barron, uh, the uh, Caverns of Sonora, and two other caves that I took him to that are wild caves um, are all formed by ascending water. Um, and they have very unique characteristics to them that once you kind of train your eye to, you yeah. can pick them up. What we're seeing is some of the caves on the recharge zone in the Texas Hill Country appear to be hypogenic, but have now been abandoned as the water levels in the aquifer have dropped and the and the uh, artesian system has migrated to the south. And so you're seeing these hypogenic features that are now being overprinted by current surface processes that uh, are now resorting to epigenic uh, cave systems in that. Mixing. Yeah, so you see mixing in that. Um, Alexander wrote a, um, a very nice monograph on the hypogene speleogenesis. And now there this is are the uh, Ukrainian scientist. Yeah, the Ukrainian scientist, and that who's who's still is, you know, we've just heard from him. He's in uh, Kiev right now, Whoa. and uh, you know, dealing with all those issues. Um, uh, I one time made a mistake of calling him a Russian, and I got a two two uh, two hour lecture on the history of Ukraine, and uh, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was before the Russians had invaded. Uh, uh, Crimea, so uh, there's no oh, love wow. lost there. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, and Alexander is the one who's really been um, probably the person who really helped me consolidate what I think is my understanding of how the Edwards formed. Wow, um, it explains a lot of the permeability issues, um, it explains some of the um, issues with uh, features that we see in caves up in the recharge zone. Yeah. Um, 
and it uh, it can be used to help us understand and manage the uh, system. But you know, the biology. Uh, just to step back uh, and talk about that. So we have catfish that are found yeah. in the deep portion Leeches of the Edwards and all yeah, kinds of snails yeah. um, and shrimp and all kinds. I think the Edwards is the second most diverse karst aquifer in the world, groundwater system is in the world, right? as far as biology. Yeah. Um, the one that is uh, that has more I understand is the uh, system in Italy is for Sassi caves, and most of that is microbiology. Wow. Uh, so we have a huge number of uh, species that are found. Uh, much of that along the saline water, freshwater interface. Contact, yeah. So it's um, uh, uh, very unique. But the question is, is how did the biology get there? Right. And so the biology is trying to tell us something about the um, processes, uh, the interconnectedness of the conduits. So there's one of three or four different theories. The first one is that these catfish came in off the recharge zone washed in, managed to travel across the artesian portion down to the deep saline portion of the aquifer, and over tens of thousands of generations evolved, you know, to, wow. to these five-inch-long catfish with no eyes and completely white, translucent, okay? Wow. The second theory is that they've come in through the uh, springs, and they have swum, you know, from Comel Springs. Going against current. Well, yeah, but the current's probably not, you know, once you get out of the you know, the area where the discharge is occurring, and so you have a larger area of, of flow, it's probably, the current's probably not that hard to swim against, hmm. I would think, hmm. I may be wrong. But obviously they got in there somehow. And they may have come in through the springs and over tens of thousands of generations adapted to this habitat where there is, um, you know, the uh, bacteria, the uh, what are called autochemotrophs, um, bacteria that are living at, at great depth. Um, hmm. The water at that depth is warm it's in the 90s, uh -huh. Fahrenheit. Um, so these guys have uh, evolved that. Uh, the third thing is is that they could very well be um, silicon-based life forms that are evolved completely independent. Because I saw that on Star Trek, and you know, <laughs> that may be the other option. <laughs> really I think I'm really, a, I think I'm really uh, going with... Uh, with uh, uh, explanation number two, they probably came in from the springs. But to be able to flow through the, uh, the aquifer, you know, they, um, there's got to be large enough conduit, interconnected passages right. or pores right. that the fish can swim 20 miles, wow. you know, from Comel Springs or San Antonio Springs. Maybe they entered those springs, you know, and, um, hmm. um, you know, they, they were able to basically, you know, reach the uh, saline water, freshwater interface and develop a niche because we don't see the evidently the the diversity of, of biology in the areas that are uh, away from the uh, the saline water freshwater interface so we seem to have biology that's, that's adopted to the right. epigenic processes in the recharge zone that are going on now we have some salamanders that are you know that are found let's say at in some of the caves uh, in that area and some uh, some other critters but most of the biologic diversity is found along the deep, you know, uh, artesian portions of the aquifer, and not in the middle. So we know that they're not living off of detritus because the water wells in the deep artesian portion of the aquifer don't get muddy. Wow. You know, so they're, they're living there in this uh, basically, um, 
along this chemical gradient yeah. um, and completely independent of photosynthesis. Yeah. So we, we, you know, basically when I went to school, we learned that, you know, the sun basically you know, drives, you know, all the biology in the process. And, not the case. And that, and that's not the case here. You know, that's so these incredible. things are probably, you know, they're more like uh, some of the bacteria and other biology that's been found in the deep um, vents. Vents. Yeah, that's right. Vents, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. These aren't the events, you know, the events are hot. So we have, you can almost argue that you have continental vents. These are, these are almost a continental vent. Well, the uh, vent is probably not a, a, a volcanic vent like, you know, you're seeing on the rift zones. You know, right. Like, it's uh, more obviously yeah. connected to the deep, but I, yeah. you, you, maybe but it's, it's, it's a depth of circulation issue. It's the, um, we, we know that the, um, the depth of the water in the Edwards is is warmer because it's three thousand feet below the surface or two thousand sure. feet below the surface. Right. Um, and but probably maybe there's, not. Maybe uh, there's a connection to a deeper process. You know, like some of these Uvalde uh, and and Bastrop uh, serpentinization vents. These igneous vents are all over the Balcones. Could be. Could be. Yeah, I had That's a that. heat source. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so it's it's complex and it needs a lot more study. Heck yeah, it does. <laughs> and where's the funding going? I don't know. It's frustrating, you know. Yeah. The funding to to solve these things or to study these things in greater detail, yeah. uh, you know, that should be should be a, a high priority. Yeah. Better understand this system. This is we're talking about the fresh water yeah. system that's keeping these yeah. cities thriving and yeah. and not in in scarcity. Yeah, pretty so, important yeah. deal. Yeah, so we've um, we've done dye tracing in the Edwards, which is uh, probably the most difficult place to do dye tracing in the country because of the flow paths, wow. the large number of you know public water supply wells. So we've done dye tracing up on the recharge zone where we've we've determined that we've got groundwater velocities of uh, well over a thousand feet per day to as much as uh, a mile to a mile and a half per day. Um, flowing Jeez. off the recharge zone south into the artesian That's zone. moving, huh? Um, we have also done some dye tracing around the springs uh, where we've injected dyes, and we've seen groundwater velocities there of a couple thousand feet per day uh, on the uh, Edwards, on the, uh, on the um, uh, uh, recharge zone uh over by Clement Springs to uh, slower velocities, uh, you know, around the uh, in the deep Artesian zone, and I think we were probably the first people to do a dye trace in the Artesian zone in the U.S., uh, where we injected dye down a well 600 feet deep mm-hmm. or 800 feet deep, and had, had it come out 36 hours later um, in the springs, uh, you know, got beautiful dye recovery curves and things. Wow. So, um, so you know what's happening to the contact as we drain it as we we're kind of getting into the completion part of the pb podcast now okay. where we're kind of talking about like the studies of the future and these aquifers that mm-hmm. we live on or, or what's yeah. changing what's your thoughts on water and yeah. and kind of where it's going but one, one of my questions to start that off is this contact is there's a natural process that's driving this geologic contract uh contact of the bad water line uh there's definitely a bit there must be a pretty major density change between the the bottom and the top of that and there's a geo it seems like in geologic time it's it's getting more to the south more to the north it's getting larger the freshwater part of the the system seems to be getting bigger uh as we as we pull from that to use the freshwater yeah how do you think that's making the that 
contact change? Well, the um, permeabilities in the saline water seem to be uh, an order of magnitude or more lower than you would see in the freshwater zone. So some of the large well fields that are located right next to that interface during low aquifer periods don't seem to be able to draw that saline water into the wells. Hmm. Um, So even though they are pumping large volumes of water, the permeability is so great in the freshwater zone that it doesn't seem to be a concern. It it was initially discussed as a concern that if we overpumped the aquifer, we could end up with saltwater intrusion and causing some of the wells to shut down. But uh, data that we collected during the um, uh, during some of the uh, uh, drought periods of uh, water quality, looking at um, these large pumping wells in the freshwater, doesn't indicate that we've been able to pull it down even during severe droughts. Wow. Yeah. The other advantage to these karst aquifers is is that they recharge very quickly. Um, So when we get, we have a drought, aquifer levels drop, but if you have a large uh, storm event or series of storm events, especially in the winter, then the aquifer will recharge. And so the highest water levels in the aquifer uh, actually occurred in the early 90s, and we've approached those a couple of times uh, in the 2000s. So we've we've seen large drawdowns during droughts. We've seen large recharge events during uh, you know, major storm events. So um, we're... The amount of water that can be withdrawn from the aquifer also is limited uh, by regulations through the Edwards Aquifer Authority. And so um, there are no more basically permits that are being issued. So Mm. the total amount of water has been capped. And during droughts, Mm. people are required to reduce the amount of water that they're pumping. Mm -hmm. And that will maintain spring flow, um, discharging from... uh, the springs, because the springs are important ecological resources also. There are a number of endangered species that utilize the springs and, and sure. basically are found nowhere else in the world except in Comel and San Marcos Springs. Wow. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, uh, and the Edwards Aquifer have worked together to develop a, um, a conservation plan to make sure to protect spring flow to wow. preserve those species. Yeah. So um, Nowhere else in the world. These are types of fish? Uh, yes, uh, there's the um, fountain darter. Uh, there are a number of different uh, beetles and insects. Um, there are a couple of salamanders there. Uh, the, the Texas blind salamander, which was the very first species listed uh, on the endangered species list when the act was passed, um, is found in only a few caves in the San Marcos area. Um, so there's been a lot of research and a lot of uh, work done to to better understand the uh, life cycles of these animals and to protect them. Wow. So, so how about funding? How about let's talk about uh, where you see you know the the rules and regulations that's driving federal funding, state yeah. funding, right. and private funding uh, towards better understanding these these systems and these processes and these species. So uh, water withdrawals from the Edwards Aquifer are regulated by the Edwards Aquifer Authority. And they have, uh, they generate revenue by um, having people who are users that withdraw water from the aquifer pay a uh, a, uh, aquifer fee. And the board of the Edwards Aquifer can basically determine what that amount should be. Okay. And so they... um, uh, so each of the users uh, have a permit, and they will basically pay on either the volume of their permit 
or the amount of water that they pump. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that generates uh, revenue for the Edwards Aquifer Authority. And one of the components of the Edwards Aquifer Authority is, is a research program. Nice. Yeah. How much so, money do they take in, do you know? Uh, you know, um, I don't know what the budget is for this year, but it's in the millions. M millions of dollars oh, yeah. every year goes into the research. Well, um, into the research and into running the Edwards Aquifer Authority and also the Habitat Conservation Plan Maintenance. So there's um, um, a fair amount of money through the Habitat, yeah. I've, okay, there you go. Yeah, I've got to stretch my back out a little bit. Um, so, um, you know, I, I would have to dig you up the, the more recent uh, funding numbers, but they're all online. Uh, but the budget for the Edwards Aquifer Authority is, uh, I think, around uh, Fifteen million dollars. Wow! And um, a year. A year, and that money wow. will go to administrative costs, sure, research, habitat conservation plan funding, uh, et cetera. Um, Man, so that one entity mm -hmm. uh, is researching fresh water versus maybe the saline water, kind of how that contact's moving, what's happening in the aquifer, the species of the aquifer, and right. in the springs? Right. It's yeah, so, so there's an extensive monitoring program to look at water quality across the aquifer to see if there's degradation that may be occurring. Yeah. So uh, a number of wells are sampled, and um, it's one of, the, um, one of the things that we uh, implemented when I started working at the Evers Aquifer Authority 22 years ago, and I retired uh, last uh, May. Wow. Yeah, so um, the uh, was to in initiate a uh, water quality sampling program that runs from basically Uvalde to the springs. And uh, many of the wells are sampled either yearly or quarterly, again, depending on uh, the uh, location and interest, uh, for a very wide range of parameters. Uh, when I got here, uh, there was basically, there were wells across the saline water, freshwater interface that were being sampled for metals and uh, what I call wet chemistry, you know, cations and anions. Ooh, nice. and We've expanded that to include herbicides, pesticides, PCBs. Nice. What about metals? Uh, looking at all the different all, all the metals. Is that uh, right? Yeah, and volatile organic compounds. Is that and, right? And semi-volatiles. Hydrocarbons? Um, basically, they would appear either as VOCs or SVOCs. Volatile organic DOC? Huh? The dissolved organic? Uh, we do some of that. Um, but again, I... I uh, that, that's modified. What's and VOC? A volatile organic compound. So that would be benzene to, oh. you know, on up from, you know, benzene and toluene and ethylbenzene and xylene and uh, all the other, you know, uh, Is that the heavier VOCs. aromatic stuff? or what uh, Yes. Oh, and then okay. the uh, semi-volatiles are your heavier compounds. And that's so, wow. you know, US EPA has got um, a, a suite, you know, of, of analysis that, you commonly do uh, That's for, for How about lithium? Any, any uh, anomalies in lithium? I, you know, I'd, I'd have to look at the data, and I'm not sure that lithium was one of the compounds we've looked at. Oh. Yeah, strontium, uh, there are some interesting uh, things with strontium that, strontium that can maybe be used to help define contributions from the Glen Rose Aquifer up on the 
contributing zone uh, seems to maybe have a little bit different signature. But though, you know, the part of the problem of trying to determine your water balance is to determine where water is coming from and going to is looking for unique components in the water. And the problem with the Glen Rose is it's also a limestone. Yeah. And so it's really hard to differentiate those. Right. But um, there's, some, there's some good folks working on that at the Edwards now. And uh, cool. some folks with... Uh, is all that yeah. publicly available? Yes. Can I, I can pull all that data? Uh, you could pull... Uh, yeah, you certainly pull the historic data. Uh, you know, whether this year's data is available for you or not is a good question. But, you know, previous years they publish it and it's on the web. Elemental data, all that stuff's yeah. out there. Yeah, man, that's fantastic. I'll have to shoot some emails back and forth with you to show me some links that I can dig into some of that. Yeah, there's uh, the hydrologic uh, data reports are out there, and it includes everything from rainfall, water levels to chemistry. Right, and that's been published every year. GIS mapper that kind of has it all in place, or Uh, you got to kind of still put that together. You may have to put that together Uh, again. I. Don't know if that material's on the web page yeah. or not. Certainly, there'll be some X Y coordinates of where, oh, where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yep. So easily mappable if it's not already. Right. Right. And uh, you know, it's all on the uh, the the um, uh, web page there. Uh, but you may be able to also ask for an ASCII file and download the data. Cool. Get oh, it. So, nice. You can yeah. contact one of the guys. And, right. Wow, that'd be right, great. Right. Yeah. That would be super yeah. great. Now, what uh, fifteen million dollars does sound like a lot of money, but uh, are they doing any kind of, uh, you know, public forums and public events where they they're looking for private funding to help, uh, you know, beef up this this effort to uh, map these changes and and better understand what's going yeah. on in the ecosystem? Yeah, well, the Habitat Conservation Plan has a number of different uh, funding sources, okay, and so they're obtaining uh, money, I believe, from Fish and Wildlife certainly from the Evers Aquifer, but from all the other folks who have signed on to the uh, Habitat Conservation Plan. So um, there is a, uh, a mechanism there for you know, obtaining either in-kind services or funding. But um, those areas, you know, I'm, I'm not as familiar with because it's been a couple of years since I've really worked with those numbers. So um, to look at the contributions uh, from individuals and that. I know that there's also the Evers Aquifer Foundation, which is uh, being used to raise private nice. money. And there have been uh, efforts to try and uh, obtain grant money for research. Nice. And also to support scientists and others who are working right. on uh, work. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's the the Garys of the world that are out there that have this, you know, uh, natural affinity to study this stuff. And they really enjoy, you know, that and, and mapping caves and, and uh, you know, not just mapping the size and shape of them and like what sediments and, and what the water's doing, but the elemental makeup of the walls you know we have handheld tools now that you can get down there and and you can start mapping the elemental change of the aquifer uh and its heterogeneity from from one side to the other other uh it's really interesting i have some data and some ideas from magmacam and doing research with them that you know these these metal anomalies in in aquifers um could be uh, representative of the aquifer itself there could be metal anomalies in the carbonates or in the sands um, yeah. and you just got to do that work you got to you got to compare you know you got to core it you got to get the cuttings and you got to do the, the work on that to, to know that but maybe some of those anomalies are driving some of the anomalous medical conditions uh, yeah. in the community um, so there's a tie mm-hmm. there's a tie there that uh, some of the aquifer could be contributing these these metals that are 
are potentially contributing to these health issues uh, and the anomalies there. Yeah. Now, I know that you know we look at the uh, the water quality data and compare it to the um, a Safe Drinking Water Act criteria, and uh, there are very few parameters that exceed the uh, maximum contaminant limit sure. uh, for uh, uh, parameters in that. Uh, the water quality in the Edwards is, is actually quite high, very good. Um, but there are places where it has been degraded due to, uh, you know, human impacts and that. Wow. Yeah. Um, there, there's a number of cases where uh, there have been uh, detections of gasoline um, in some of the recharge wells. Uh, there's been other issues with uh, some of the uh, uh, solvents that are associated with um, uh, possible landfills up on the recharge zone, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So th there's some there's some issues, um, and the I think the EAA does a good job in trying to track those and keep an eye on them. And that um, there have been a few wells that have had them enclosed that had exceeded contamination levels. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, by and large, the water quality actually is surprisingly quite good right now. However, you know, considering we're we're building up onto the recharge zone. Um, and uh, with you know the urbanization basically in suburban sprawl, mm -hmm. um, one of the concerns is degradation both from uh, non-point source contamination, but also through things like sewer uh, releases. So wow. we've had a number of sanitary sewer breaks up on the recharge wow. zone, and one of the concerns is is that they would impact. So you know you talk about um, water quality issues with metals or herbicides or pesticides mm -hmm. or VOCs. Uh, what I lose sleep about, you know, or used to lose sleep about when I worked on there, was the uh, was pathogens and wow. potential, you know, breaks from sewer lines. So, you know, wow. if you dump five hundred thousand gallons of raw sewage oh onto the gosh. recharge zone, um, you know, yeah, where's it where's it going to go? How quickly is it going to get there? What wells are it going to impact? Right. And people, you know, if you think about it, um, the the concentrations, the contaminant levels that are allowed by EPA are generally based on toxicological studies associated with increased risks of, uh, of certain cancers and or other acute health effects or chronic health effects over drinking the water for very long periods of time. Uh, so um, let's say, for example, the, uh, the um, concentration allowed for benzene is five parts per billion which I think, if I remember right, is, one, is five seconds in 32 years. These are incredibly small numbers. Hmm. Um, and so to increase the risk of generating a certain percentage of cancers over a lifetime, you know, they set that limit very, very low. Pathogens, on the other hand, are something that can make you sick uh, if you ingest the water tomorrow and um, can result in um, uh, a number of... of ill health effects wow. and there are some well-documented uh, case studies in karst aquifers where um, people have uh, been exposed to uh, pathogens and resulted in um, in uh, all kinds of issues wow. uh, the walkerton ontario canada case in the uh, late uh, early 2000s or late 99 early 2000s where uh, I think 5,000 people, a city of 5,000 people, 2,500 of them got sick. 
and I believe they had seven or eight people die. Oh, shoot. And a number of people who had uh, serious damage to kidneys, stomachs, and livers oh, from drinking, uh, you know, uh, uh, water that was contaminated with um, uh, fecal coliform. Oh, my you know, gosh. So yeah. there was a break in the sewage line somewhere in the discharge? Uh, that whole system. It was actually related to application. In my understanding is it was related to application of, uh, of uh, animal waste on a karst uh, landscape that then flushed into a sinkhole that then went into a well, and the is well right? uh, coordinators were not working. And so people were getting sick. Um, some of the early cases, the people thought it was food poisoning. So the doctor said, well, make sure you stay hydrated, drink oh plenty of water. Oh, my gosh. Um, and there was actually criminal cases. You know, uh, there were a number of people who mismanaged the water system, and those people went to jail. Oh, my gosh. Very uh, serious. Yeah, so if you get a chance, read the case histories of that. Walker I Tech. will. I yeah. will. Gary Schindel, thank you so much yeah. for uh, sitting down and, and taking time to, to tell your story and, and <laughs> teach us about what's going on out here. It was a nice ramble. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for inviting me, Troy. I really appreciate it.